for the choice of the nation, our chieftain so brave. Welcome so to the Not Old Better Show on radio we'll and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and as part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series, we have a wonderful show today. Our guest today is Smithsonian Associate and author and professor of history, Christopher Hamner. Dr. Christopher Hamner teaches and writes about U.S. history, war, and American society, the individual experience of combat, technological change, and warfare. The title of Dr. Hamner's upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates is A New Birth of Freedom, Lincoln's Oratory and the Civil War. More details are available on our website, but we have Dr. Hamner today. More than 150 years after his death, our 16th president maintains his reputation as one of the most gifted orators to hold the nation's highest office. Abraham Lincoln used his facility with language to help guide the country through the Civil War, the most destructive in its history, and through the massive social and political disruption that accompanied four years of fighting. Christopher Hamner, professor of history at George Mason University, our guest today, will focus with us on how three of Lincoln's best-known speeches, his first inaugural in 1861, his Gettysburg Address in 1863, and his second inaugural in 1865, and how those speeches helped to move a war-weary citizenry toward a radical new understanding of the country's own values and of the meaning of the war and of emancipation. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associate Christopher Hamner. Dr. Christopher Hamner, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am delighted to have the opportunity to appear on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. That's that's nice of you to say. And I'll tell you, this is exciting for me. And, and I, I love history. Um, this is your area of expertise. You, of course, are going to be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here. And I'm excited about this conversation. We're going to talk about Lincoln. We're going to talk about the Civil War. We're going to talk about Lincoln, the great orator. But rather than have me do the talking, I really am excited to hear from you. Why don't you start by telling us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? Sure. The Smithsonian Associates is hosting a discussion about Lincoln and his political rhetoric. So we'll be looking at a series of three speeches that trace the evolution of Lincoln's thinking on the institution of slavery and its place in the United States. We're going to focus on the first inaugural, which he delivered in 1861, the Gettysburg Address in November of 1863, and the second inaugural in March of 1865. And together, those speeches, I think, describe a fascinating evolution that the president is undergoing himself and leading the country through during this amazingly consequential four years in American history. Yeah, I I love that word about Lincoln, fascinating, because he was a special person, and and he really had this special way of communicating. What what do you think is so special about Lincoln's rhetoric that that made him this powerful communicator, this this orator, jester, even lawyer, statesman, leader, and then and then of course president? There are so many adjectives that you could apply to Lincoln, and <laughs> mm-hmm. I can give you a few reasons that I think Lincoln's language was so important, both in the mid nineteenth century and resonates so much with us today in the twenty first century. And one of the things that I love about Smithsonian Associates presentations is we'll have a chance to work directly with the texts. That is, we'll have a chance to look at the speeches themselves 
We'll be employing a technique that historians and scholars of uh, literature refer to as close reading. Close reading is an examination not just of what is being said, but also how it's being said. So we'll pay a lot of attention to things like word choice and illusions and imagery and analogies and the way that Lincoln, who I think was about as gifted a wordsmith as, as you can find in U.S. history, put together these speeches that were incredibly important in the moment and still have a lot to, to tell us today. So I'll give you three things that I think really stand out about Lincoln's rhetoric. Uh, one is just how relatable it was. Most of your audience is probably aware Lincoln did not have formal schooling himself. He was self-taught. He read the law on his own. And throughout his entire career, he maintains this ability to put even sophisticated ideas in very plain-spoken, straightforward terms. He uses a lot of kind of folksy analogies. Lincoln understood his audience very well. Most households in the 19th century would have you know, two books in common, the Farmer's Almanac and the St. James Bible. And Lincoln draws on the kind of language that everyone in his audience could relate to and connect with. So the first thing I think is just how relatable his, his analogies are. And he talks directly to the audience in terms that they can understand. The second is that he's so substantive. Lincoln is kicking head on some of the most challenging legal and constitutional and moral problems of the 19th century. And he puts them in very folksy terms and uses plain spoken language, but he does not dilute the complexity of the issues. And that's a really compelling balancing act to be able to make a plain spoken comparison that does not at the same time oversimplify the issue under discussion. And you can see several times in the speeches we'll be looking at in this presentation where he does that. And then the last is just that Lincoln was an exceptional wordsmith. He has such a wonderful ear for language and a gift for memorable turns of phrase. And one of the things that you can see in studying Lincoln, and I think a lot of great writers and orators of the 19th century, the 20th century, is the care that they put into their, their speeches. And so you can see places where Lincoln makes emendations and changes. He has some of his cabinet look over his words on occasion and make suggestions about things he could say differently. And close reading this process of really putting the, the phrases and sentences themselves under the microscope is this wonderful way to penetrate a little deeper into Lincoln's mind and understand the importance of the ideas he's putting forth by looking at the specific way that he presents them. Thank you. That was wonderful. I really appreciate that. You, you referenced this idea of Lincoln's evolving ideas about slavery. I wonder, given his plain spokenness and his, um, his ability to be this, this wordsmith, how were those ideas communicated and how were they received? Because I'm wondering, sure. is this a man? Yeah, tell us a little bit about that because I, I think that would be interesting to know. Did he think on his feet? Was he just doing this kind of uh, impromptu? I think that Lincoln was very quick on his feet and there are any number of stories where Lincoln is very quick with a, a witticism or a rejoinder. But there's no question that he, he thinks through his ideas very, very carefully. And 
I would offer the first inaugural and the second inaugural as a great example of how we can see this evolution in thinking over slavery. If you go back and read the first inaugural, it's a fairly long speech. It's uh, about 3,500 words. So we'd imagine 45 minutes or an hour. Remember, Lincoln is delivering this at a time when there's no artificial implication, there's no public address system. And he's speaking to the entire country in the spring of 1861. Seven Southern states have already seceded, but Lincoln does not recognize their secession. And Lincoln is trying to lure the already seceded states back into the union. There are four more states that will secede later in the spring of 1861. And Lincoln is clearly speaking to those states as well. And he presents slavery, the institution of chattel slavery, race-based chattel slavery that's based on white supremacy as a minor political issue, I mean, a, a considerable political issue, but one that is amenable to compromise. He acknowledges that the institution of slavery is protected in the Constitution, and he goes to great lengths to reassure white Southerners that he has no intention to interrupt or destroy the institution of slavery where it already exists. And I think this is one of the big misconceptions in the public imagination. The Republican Party is not, in its initial iteration, an abolitionist party. That is, they are not pushing for the immediate end to slavery. It's an anti-slavery party that wants to curb the expansion of the institution. And so very early in the first inaugural, Lincoln offers reassurance to white Southerners. And he quotes his own stump speech. So he will address his audience and he will say that he has no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. And then he goes on to say, I believe I have no lawful right to do so and I have no inclination to do so. And that can sound very surprising to people who know Lincoln as the great emancipator, because here he is addressing the nation and saying, I have no, law no lawful power to interfere with slavery. I have no inclination to do so. But he is speaking very specifically to a nervous country, one that has already been torn apart by secession. And he presents the institution of slavery as a kind of legal issue that is amenable to political compromise. And he'll go on to make some of those uh, very plain spoken analogies about secession. So you'll have white Southerners in the seceded states who are arguing that the Constitution is just a kind of contract, that the states entered into it in 1789, and now they no longer wish to be in it, and they are just simply dissolving the contract. And Lincoln later in the first inaugural points out that that is not how contracts work. He points out to his audience that one side of a contract, one party cannot dissolve the contract unilaterally. He says one side can violate the contract. And then he'll go on to make some comparisons about uh, what secession would mean. And he closes with that famous paragraph about appealing to the better angels of our nature, that we must not be enemies, but friends. And the entire speech is about the possibility of a political compromise, and it positions slavery as a sort of 
alternative way of structuring the economy, that the two sides have differing ideas about this one minor issue, but that they are amenable to compromise. We jump ahead to 1865. It is a completely different speech. It is, I think, of all of Lincoln's addresses, my very favorite. Um, and if you look over it carefully, it is a very, very different presentation about slavery. Some of Lincoln's great language that will be familiar to your audience comes from this speech. And in it, it is no longer the institution of race-based chattel slavery as this somewhat modest difference between the North and the South that is amenable to compromise. In the middle part of the speech, Lincoln starts portraying the institution of slavery as the heart of the conflict, that the Civil War by 1865 is clear to everyone, white, black, North, South, that it has been fundamentally about the institution of slavery. And the language is just fascinating. So he talks about slavery as an offense, um, and that it is the institution of slavery has lasted longer than God's appointed time, and that God now wills to remove, and that God has given to both North and South the terrible war as woe due to those by whom the offense of slavery came. And he reaches back into the, the King James Bible, and he talks about the in the war as the punishment that is visited upon the nation. He says, if God wills that the war continues until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. There he's talking about all of the stolen wealth, the labor expropriated for generation after generation after generation of blacks laboring in chains. And Lincoln says, the war has simply destroyed all of that's the, the wealth piled up by Southern whites. He says, if every, if the war continues until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, if, if the cruelty and barbarism visited on black bodies in over generations of slavery have to be paid for with the cruelty and barbarism of war, Lincoln says, so must it be, as it was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said today, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And that's the kind of language that should make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. <laughs> the difference between the first inaugural where Lincoln says, this is a contractual issue, one side of the country structures its labor and economy one way, and the other side structures it a different way. By the second inaugural, Lincoln has moved forward an immeasurable distance. Now the institution of slavery appears very clearly as it is as a sin. And the war is the atonement for that sin. And what I find especially fascinating is that Lincoln in his second inaugural doesn't just portray this as many Northern whites would have been pleased to as a Southern sin. He doesn't say that the war is the punishment the South is paying. He says the war is the punishment that we are paying for the national sin of slavery. And it is the penance that the country is making, that slavery is not just a Southern sin, but a national sin. The South for practicing it for so long and the North for allowing it to endure and for profiting off it. 
the difference in those two speeches to me is just mind boggling. Um, and they're both so compelling in their own way, but the, the dramatic move forward to naming slavery as what it had so clearly been as a national sin and framing the war as a penance um, is one that just still resonates with us in the 21st century. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, the hairs on the back of my neck, absolutely standing up and beautiful. Isn't that language power? amazing? The amazing. judgments of the Lord, true mm-hmm. and righteous. And what's so amazing to me is Lincoln does not appear to be a believing Christian or a churchgoer. Uh, it, in the sense that we would, we would conceive of in the modern imagination, but he understands his audience. He understands that the people he are, he's addressing are highly religious And he draws on these kinds of analogies and the kind of language that would be absolutely familiar to them. You know, he is directly quoting uh, from the King James Bible and said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This war is the punishment from God and the country is doing its penance for the the grave national sin of slavery. Important words. Um, Our guest today... Uh, Dr. Christopher Hamner is Smithsonian Associate Author and Professor of History at George Mason University. Am I right about that? That's correct. Uh huh. And will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here Thursday, April 14th. The title of Dr. Hamner's presentation is A New Birth of Freedom, Lincoln's Oratory and the Civil War. Dr. Hamner, you've talked to us a little bit about the first inaugural and the second inaugural, and wow, yeah, those are amazing speeches. I want to talk to you for just a moment or two about another powerful uh, Lincoln oration, the Gettysburg Address. Maybe tell us what's so powerful about that, because that that makes the hairs on my neck stand as well. It sure does, and I think it is deservedly one of Lincoln's best-known pieces of political rhetoric. It's really easy to forget here in the 21st century the conditions and the context of that speech. Uh, I was handed that um, the speech as a, as a middle schooler and just told to memorize it. And it's very easy to look at it as sort of perfunctory. Well, this is the thing that you would say given the situation. It reads very differently if you think about Lincoln in November of 1863, standing over the freshly dug graves of you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Union soldiers at a cemetery, a national cemetery that was purpose built to to provide a resting place for all of these northern boys and men who had lost their lives in the fighting the previous July and whom the government could not afford to return home. So this is a, a purpose built national cemetery. And remember that in the audience in the summer of 1863, this is an America that had embarked on this war in the spring of 1861, expecting it would be very brief and relatively bloodless. The North and South both, both imagine that, you know, maybe one, one battle will convince their opponents that the, the war isn't worth it and that they, they are in earnest. And instead, the war has dragged out and has just been a, a meat grinder. Um, and in the first inaugural, Lincoln talks about slavery as uh, you know, a social and economic institution that's amenable to compromise. And in fact, through the war's first 16, 18 months, the offer on the table from the Lincoln administration for the rebellious white Southerners is the status quo antebellum, a 
Latin phrase that means the way things were before the war. So if Southern rebels are willing to put down their arms, they will be welcomed back into the Union. In fact, Lincoln's position is that because there is no mechanism for secession, they've never left the Union, but they'll be welcomed back in and we will simply turn the clock back to the day before the 1860 election and white Southerners will return to the Union with all of their rights and privileges intact. And of course, the biggest right is the right to practice chattel slavery, to buy and sell black bodies. And for the first 18 months of the war, if the South lays down their arms, they will return to the Union and the practice of slavery where it already exists will be permitted by the federal government. By the summer of 1863, there has just been so much suffering, so much cruelty, so much loss, so many empty chairs at family tables, so many men coming back with a, an empty sleeve or an empty pant leg pinned, pinned against uh, their cloak. And Lincoln is beginning to drag a often reluctant country to the realization that restoring the status quo antebellum, that is going back to the way things were before the war, cannot justify all of this sacrifice. And he is beginning to make the argument that something bigger than simply restoring the status quo antebellum is necessary. And he does that really beautifully in the Gettysburg Address. And there are a couple of passages that stand out. But one of them is just that famous opening, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth upon this continent. And that strikes a lot of us in the 21st century as a very archaic way because you have to stop and do the math. And it was a somewhat unusual way uh, to express that idea, even in 1863, that was not common to say four score and seven, 87. I think one of the reasons that Lincoln uses that phrasing so carefully is to make the audience stop and do the math. And remember, most Americans in the middle of the 19th century dated the birth of the country to 1787 or 1789. That is the, the drafting of the Constitution or the ratification of the Constitution, which represents the governing documents. If you subtract 87 from 1863, you get a very different date, not 1787 or 1789, but 1776. And Lincoln is doing something very interesting in that party, saying that the real founding of the country is not the Constitution, it's the Declaration of Independence. And in doing so, Lincoln sort of sidesteps what had become the huge sticking point of the early 19th century, the fact that the Constitution very clearly protects or offers some protections for the institution of slavery. And this is one of the reasons that white Southern slavers had been so successful in consolidating their power. Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address reaches back even earlier and says the true founding of the nation, the clearest expression of its ideals are found not in the Constitution, but in the Declaration of Independence. And in the rest of that paragraph, he talks about using language lifted directly from the Declaration, what the country is really about. But there are some very interesting very subtle changes in the way that Lincoln uses that language. So he talks about uh, a new country dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And that's language that his audience would have known immediately, the preamble to the Declaration. But your audience is familiar with the Declaration. And remember, in the Declaration of Independence, 
The idea that all men are created equal is not a proposition. It is a self-evident truth. And Lincoln here is taking a very small change and making it into something very profound. That the idea that people are equal and are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights and that self-government is practicable, that is not a self-evident truth. That that is something that has to be tested and that the Civil War is testing that proposition right in front of them. And I think that raises the stakes enormously. Americans in the middle of the 19th century appreciate the fragility of this experiment in self-government. And Lincoln talks about being engaged in a great civil war to test whether that government or any government can long endure. And so he is changing the terms of the conflict, not just from a struggle over whether the federal authority will be restored in the seceded states, but to something even bigger. And he gets directly at what that thing is in his closing, that the country must have a new birth of freedom. And those are not hollow words. When Lincoln is talking about a new birth of freedom, that's not simply filigree that's designed to make it memorable. He is talking very specifically about a new country that emerges from the war in which slavery has been destroyed and the nation acknowledges the, the basic humanity and rights of more than 4 million blacks. And there are many white Northerners who are ambivalent at best about the end of slavery. And so this address at Gettysburg is dragging the country to a new kind of understanding of what the war is and what the country is about. Really a, um, a, a wonderful presentation coming up by Dr. Christopher Hamner, our guest today. Dr. Hamner, I just have one final question. As, as you've been talking about all of this, I've been thinking in my mind about the fragility of government. I've been thinking about words uh, such as torn apart by secession and and I'm struck that there there are some parallels perhaps to what we're what we're experiencing today. I wonder I wonder if you just tell us what what do you see as the most essential values that we learn through Lincoln's oratory that are pertinent to us today? That's a wonderful question, Paul. And I think a lot of us have been thinking about the sort of echoes and reverberations of you know this crisis of the mid-19th century and the 21st. I'll give you a few. I think one, one thing that comes from Lincoln's discussion and from some of the other political rhetoric of the middle of the 19th century is just the fragility of self-government. I, I grew up, at, I was in school in the 1990s, um, the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think that there was a sense of triumph, you know, that self-government, democracy had proven to be the, the superior system and that sooner or later everyone would embrace it. And I think Lincoln and earlier generations of Americans caution us that self-government is a fragile system and is always, uh, you know, at any moment can find itself in the middle of a crisis. And so one of the things that that I take away from a lot of Lincoln's discussions is just how carefully we have to guard this incredibly delicate and incredibly valuable thing we have. I, I also take from Lincoln's political speech and particularly the series of speeches, the importance of open-mindedness. Uh, Lincoln exhibits tremendous growth over the course of his political career. And there was a moment, you know, in in the 20th, 21st century where a politician changing his or her mind at any moment was a, was likely to be labeled a flip-flopper. 
uh, someone who didn't have any serious positions. Um, and I think that that's, you know, can paint us into a corner. Lincoln's ideas evolve. I don't think that he's a flip-flopper for a variety of reasons. And first of all, the positions he's taking are generally not politically expedient. They're often very unpopular. But also, he's not going back and forth as the wind blows. He is always moving in the direction of more freedom, more liberty, more equality. But the willingness to be persuaded by the evidence that he sees in front of him, the willingness to learn from people around him and to be influenced by what he sees, I think is... Um, really useful. And then just Lincoln's unbelievable political courage to take these positions. And it's very easy to forget in the 21st century, if you don't dig back into the documents, how deeply, deeply unpopular Lincoln is at almost every moment during his presidency. And what's astonishing is the way he's under fire from all sides. So there are you know, uh, Northern Democrats who chastise Lincoln for doing far too much and acting as a tyrant and usurping powers that are outside the constitution. But he's also under constant fire and criticism from members of his own party, including occasionally members of his own cabinet who are arguing that he is not doing enough. And Lincoln is caught between these kinds of criticisms and seems to have his eyes fixed on the horizon. And so he, he has never blown too far off course I think because he possesses a, a an abiding understanding of his the moment that history has called him to, but there's certainly to to go back and look at the way Lincoln is criticized in newspapers, in speeches, by people all around the political spectrum reminds us of what a critical strength uh, that kind of political courage can be. Dr. Christopher Hamner has been our guest today. Dr. Hamner, thank you so much for your time. You really just do such a great job relating all that is Lincoln to us. This presentation of yours is going to be fantastic. I'm so grateful for your time today and for sharing with us Lincoln's oratory and his ability to heal and use this facility of, of language to really guide our country during during these difficult times. What a, what a fantastic presentation. Christopher Hamner's title is A New Birth of Freedom, Lincoln's Oratory in the Civil War. We'll have links to where our audience can find out more information about Christopher Hamner, as well as his upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. But Christopher Hamner, thanks so much for your time. And please, please come back. I, I love history. I, I really just enjoy hearing from you. And I know our audience will. So if you've got more to tell us about any one of a number of subjects that you're working on, we'd love to have you back. I would love to come back, Paul. Thank you so much for the invitation. It is so easy to talk about Lincoln because there is so much there to work with. So he makes it easy. I would love to come back at any point in the future um, and continue conversations in this vein. It's a great opportunity. Well, thank you. And we will we will make that happen. My thanks to Smithsonian Associates author, historian Christopher Hamner. The title of Dr. Hamner's upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates is A New Birth of Freedom, Lincoln's Oratory and the Civil War. More details are available on our website. But again, we've had Dr. Hamner today and it was a wonderful 
interview. I hope you've enjoyed it. My thanks, of course, to the Smithsonian team for helping me arrange this wonderful interview and for all they do to support the show. My thanks as well to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be well, be safe, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next week. The hero of Hoosier through. The pride of the sucker so lucky for Lincoln and Liberty, too.